This episode of Probably Science is brought to you by Parachute, makers of fine bedding. I speak from experience. I have a set on my bed right now, and it's the most comfortable thing I've ever slept on. Visit ParachuteHome.com science for free shipping and returns. Parachute offers a 60-night trial, so if you don't love it, just send it back. No questions asked. That's ParachuteHome.com science. Probably Science. And welcome to Probably Science, a very special episode. I think it's safe to say. <laughs> well, we're not discussing issues. I'm Matt Kirshen. That's Andy Wood. <laughs> and our guest today is uh, the uh, Frederick P. Rose Director of the Hayden Planetarium, the host of Star Talk Cosmos and... Cosmos? I just pronounced that very strangely. Cosmos. Uh, at- He's a Brit. That's the excuse we get. Whatever... He does differently because he, he's a Brit. He can, yeah. Really, yeah. Scientist, science communicator, all around man about town, and the author of the new book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, Neil deGrasse Tyson. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining <laughs> Thank us. You. And if, since I'm on the show, at least for today, can we, can we rename the show Definitely Science? Yes. That's fair. That's fair. Just for today. I could change the metadata for one episode. Change it tomorrow. <laughs> yeah, just, you know, just make it just, just for today. That's all. That's, that's a very reasonable request. I think that's Done. reasonable. Right. Should, we, right. should we re- Welcome to Definitely Science. <laughs> Definitely Science. <laughs> I'm Matt I gotta have Jesse redo the theme song now. That's okay. Yeah. He'll do that. Okay. He's willing to do that, I'm sure. Uh, we, we got a copy of the book, and... Um, oh, by the way, can I re-declare the title the way I want to hear it said? Yes. Yeah. Because you just said astrophysics for people. No, you get astrophysics... For people in a hurry. <laughs> okay, that that's how you, that's how I want you to feel it. You, I, okay. you rush the hurry part. You don't rush the astrophysics. Hey, thank you. Yeah. You want to yeah. you want to relish the astrophysics. Okay, where's he going to go with it? For people in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> for people in a hurry. Yeah. But, you, but astrophysics has to stay mysterious. Exactly. Exactly. So like, astrophysics. For people in a hurry. Yeah. Exactly. See, thank you. It's an important <laughs> distinction though, because I was talking to my dad who. Um, like everyone in the 80s, had a copy of uh, A Brief History of Time. Mm-hmm. It's probably the best-selling, least-read book ever, right? That is correct. Yeah. <laughs> I think he said he got like 10 pages into it or something. But uh, you could say you had the book. You could say you had the book. Yeah. It's right. Plus you bought a book a with a guy with a wheelchair on the cover. Yeah. I think, I did some research on this. I think, I haven't confirmed this, but I'm pretty sure it's true, that as the first time ever a book was published with the author's photo on the cover mm. when the book was not a biography or an autobiography of the author. He was that yeah. iconic that... Well, no, he wasn't iconic yet. It was just, it was oh. an idea. It was a, it was a marketing idea. Uh-huh. The guy's in a wheelchair, put him on, and he's brilliant, put him on the cover rather than the typical author photo on the back page. Yeah. They could have found any picture of the universe, yeah. that they were, but they put him on the cover. And since then... Every author's on the co- all the pundits, all their books. Right, they're, yeah. they're oh, on yeah. the cover. All the all the airport. Yeah, the, books. All, all the airport books. The author's on the cover. The co- and I've tried to resist that with my publisher. <laughs> you got to put you on the cover. Everybody knows. It's like no, I'm writing about the universe, not about myself. Okay, uh, and so this one, I'm not on the cover. There's not. Uh, yeah, me, there's a there's a silhouette of someone looking up at the stars. That's completely not my silhouette. Yeah, that right. is not. It's a different hairstyle. It's a different everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> this book is worth pointing. Uh, yeah, I think this book is is very much the opposite of the a brief history of time in that it is immensely readable. You you sort of tell the story of you tell the story of the universe. It's sort of got two chronologies going on. If I I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think. You sort of go through the chronology of the universe, and in parallel with that, the chronology of our discovery of how we, what we know about the universe. Well, that adds another dimension for your appreciation of what you're learning. And as an educator, I don't want to just do a, some dump of information on you. What, what fun is that? Yeah. So if the information has context and it has, has a story, mystery and story, and you go in and out of it. Uh, in a in in a, in in the way a, a novelist might go in and out of a story, yeah. then I think it enhances the value to the reader. So so that's what I've attempted, but it's up for the, the reader to decide that. But but you you said you like it. I think so it worked, you. and all, you bring together different fields like chemistry and physics. Oh yeah, and, well well because the you know even though we stovepipe our sciences, yeah, not only by course name and title and professor and textbook, but even in name, the universe does, does it, not. Yeah. Right. Yes, they the what we think of as chemistry, biology, physics is a seamless spectral blend. 
it's just what scale you're looking at it at sort of right or, you are what tools you're using yeah. right and so so when you think of geology but there's life thriving in the nooks and crannies of the rocks and 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 uh, i remember star trek where they would how, how come in star trek they never wore um spacesuits do you ever notice that right ever not ever. Like okay. hazmat suits. Not yeah. Not never. That's true. Yeah. They land on planets because what they would do is they check. Oh, Captain, it's a uh, nitrogen oxygen atmosphere. Okay, <laughs> let's go down. Just and you'd think, well, nitrogen oxygen atmospheres are just a dime a dozen in the universe because that's what we have on Earth. Later, I would learn, and I don't think they even knew this in Star Trek, that we only have oxygen because of the existence of life. You're not going to accidentally stumble upon a planet that has oxygen unless there's already life there, because oxygen itself is not chemically stable. You're not going to have free oxygen floating around just waiting for something to do unless something is actively making it. Oh, because oxygen, any oxygen floating around, normally the second it collides with energy, with other with With a hundred other combine. things, it'll make other kinds of molecules in, in, a, in a heartbeat. Right. And so oxygen in an atmosphere is not stable unless... You can have a source of it that is constantly producing it. Such as photosynthesis. Such as photosynthesis. So to look for a planet that has oxygen and then decide that's where you want to pitch tent, that is no. Unless that planet already is thriving with green plant biota. And none of those Star Trek planets ever had any vegetation that I can remember. It was like rocks. Yeah, they were all just like uh, shot out in Joshua Tree or something. Right, exactly. (laughs) Right, right, right. So let, he's what? a Brit. Does he know about Joshua I think Tree? So. I think I've been there. You've been there, okay. I've uh, I've been to Pioneer Town. That? Uh, Joshua Tree. Joshua Tree. Okay, that's my thought. Was <laughs> it like Jaguar? Yeah. <laughs> Joshua. Jaguar. Yeah. Oh, that's right. You do Jaguar, don't you? Jaguar. Even, Jaguar. even the car. You co- the the car and the cat. Say it's the same damn thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's the one thing <laughs> for the other. Yeah. There's there's a Jaguar on the hood of the Jaguar car, so it's the same thing. See, I'd say there's a Jaguar on the hood of the Jaguar. <laughs> <laughs> He's Brit, so yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He's he's a Brit. um, I can tell you this: if you're in the jungle and the jaguar is chasing you, there's no time to say jaguar. You're eaten (laughs) by that. Okay, quick, pass me the aluminium bat to turn this thing up. (laughs) (laughs) All these extra syllables are killing us. They're totally killing you. You're putting an I in that word that isn't even in there when you go aluminium, right? Because the last no, 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 they spell it the way they pronounce it. We spell it with an I. Yeah, they spell it the way they pronounce it. I also um, didn't know until reading this book how recently aluminum was even discovered. Aluminum is a modern element, yeah, right? It was not known to the ancients. The yeah, it was caught up in bauxite, basically. Uh-huh. So the ore, but we didn't know how to separate or purify the, oxi- the, the aluminum from the bauxite. Once that was finally done, very expensive process. Mm-hmm. Aluminum was this magical new element because it was light. It was shiny like silver. And... If you know, if you wanted to show off that you were wealthy, you'd have like aluminum things in your place, <laughs> and so you'd have aluminum stemware and this sort of thing. Right, oh, and really? and huh. so eventually we, we got to be able to produce more cheaply, and then it was everywhere. But even my grandparents, aluminum was basically an unfamiliar element in their lives. That's why they didn't have aluminum foil; they had tin foil. Tin, tin foil. foil. Oh, right, right, okay, yeah. right, right. And, and there was no aluminum cans. cans; there were tin cans. Now, of course, tin cans. And tin foil were not made of tin. tin. They were lined with tin. Tin cans were made of steel. Oh. But aluminum cans are made of aluminum. I didn't know that either. Was tin too expensive to do it purely, or was it not strong enough? Oh, no, no. Tin was just to, to prevent the food from um, taking on the metallic flavors oh, okay. of the steel. You wanted the steel because it was strong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Not the tin. So, so by the way, yeah, some of that is in, in this book. Yeah. And because Because elements... We discover elements in the universe. We discovered an element on the sun before we discovered it on Earth. This is helium, right? This yeah, is we, well, can, can I get there, please? <laughs> okay. Then we said, what Let shall we man. name it? Let's name it after the Greek god of the sun, Helios. Yeah. Thus came... Helium. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> this is, um, that was your cue. So, you know how you get your cue? Okay. So in the chapter about the elements, you talk about how... Um, Hydrogen is by far still, despite all the different uh, supernovae and, and stars, and that, is still by far the most prevalent element in the universe. Yeah, nine out of ten atoms in the universe is a hydrogen atom. And then most of the rest Birth of them that way from the Big Bang. Right. Uh, and then most of the rest of those are helium. And most of the re- and so 80% of what remains is helium. And all, everything else on the periodic table is fills in that little, that, that 2% of all of what's so in the, the universe. So the Big Bang produced 
he, hydrogen, helium, basically, and a bit of lithium. It, trace amounts of lithium. So it's basically a hydrogen helium soup at that point. Everything else we know and love was manufactured later in the hearts of stars. So let's let's get into this because you you start off the book with the Big Bang, uh, reasonably enough. Was that yeah? Mm-hmm. That, that, yeah. Would you agree? I think it's a reasonable place to yeah, start. Yeah, was, <laughs> I out of, the out of, was out of line there? <laughs> <laughs> I was uh, kind of hoping for like some sort of like uh, memento style like misdirect <laughs> with like the timeline. And stuff, oh yeah, like, yeah. No, start no, yeah. with the present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although interesting, yeah. It does like if you want to know what came before the Big Bang, it is uh, the contents and a little <laughs> bit of blurb about. Neil. Um, so there's that. I like that before Adel. the Big Bang, there was the contents of the universe <laughs> taking shape. Yes. Well, uh, so it starts off in the in the fraction of fraction of fraction of fraction of a, before, like in the moment of the Big Bang. You talk about how all the matter that became the universe is condensed into a, something the size of a trillionth of the period in that sentence. The size of the period that ends the sentence that uttered that fact. Uh, yes. And that that's uh, like in the opening page of the book. Yes. Right. And then and then. I I hadn't realized you used to that's take just a, that's like the total blow people's minds. I just everything want, that ever existed was in that. Uh, well, so so now now what you left out yeah. was the opening, uh, my opening epigram. Could uh-huh. you read that, please? The all right. <laughs> I've got the book in front putting of me right work, now. Matt. Yeah, yeah, putting him to work. Just let him, let him some, earn this podcast. Put some British flourish into it. Okay. Yeah. Are you uh? Do you mean this sentence right here? Yes, do it. Uh, quote, a quote from the man himself. Uh, the universe is under no obligation to make sense to you. Thank you. So now we proceed. <laughs> the universe was once one trillionth the size of the period at the end of a sentence. And you say, that doesn't make sense. Go back to page zero, where the epigram is. Right. Okay. So, so, when so all evidence tells us that the universe was once that size. Um, That's all. So, so what else can we ever do in this world? But follow what the evidence, where the evidence takes us. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, you talk, I hadn't realized um, different states of matter and different characteristics of matter came into being at very different stages along the evolution of the universe. Isn't that an amazing fact? Yes. Yeah, including just even what an for the first is it first few hundred thousand years an atom didn't exist as a concept. There were no complete atoms. When you think of an atom, you think of a nucleus and then some electrons, right? Mm-hmm. And because then an atom can bind with other atoms, and the only way an atom can combine with another atom is when the electrons attach to one another. They either share or donate or whatever. So if you have nuclei with no electrons, then the the full up concept of an atom does not yet exist. It's a soup of nuclei and electrons moving among them freely. But then you say at the moment, once it... I like once, the way he says, then I say, well, like, like this, is your, yeah. theory, yeah. this is my version. This is my version of uh, the universe. You, I'm on no, your side here. Yeah. No, excuse me, it's you, the version of the universe. Okay? You alerted me to the fact. <laughs> okay. okay, okay. Your, your, your writing alerted me to the fact that, okay, so below 3,000, once the universe cooled to below 3,000 Kelvin. As it expands, it cools. Right. Now, just to, just to put this in context... Uh, if you let air out of a bicycle tire, mm-hmm. some people ride bicycles. Do you notice that air feels cool to your mm-hmm. to your finger? I don't know if you ever noticed that. Yes. So you have it's air that had been under pressure, then it expands. And conversely, the bike pump gets hot when you're pumping up the tire. Conversely, the valve of the bike the bike pump gets hot right, right. down at the valve. Mm-hmm. So conversely, so when uh, air expands on its own, it'll cool. When you compress under force, uh, it will heat up. So the universe behaves no differently from this. Interestingly, so the expanding universe is cooling. In every moment, as it is even today. So, at around th- three uh, three hundred eighty thousand years uh, after the Big Bang, so the universe is three hundred eighty thousand years old. That's when free electrons first join nuclei. Yeah, it's cold enough, so the electrons are not moving so fast, and they're moving slow enough to just get nabbed. And this is the bit. By, that- and by the way, nuclei they're positively charged, and if you're an electron, you're negatively charged. So that's a place you want to be. You want to, yeah. yeah, you want to be But there. before that, there was so much energy that it wouldn't... They had so much energy, even if you saw the positive charge, you can't slow down and get captured. Right. Right. You're just, you're just free roaming. Uh, you're free, free range electrons. Yeah. yeah. But so, before that even, you mentioned how there was almost an equal number of matter and antimatter, and there was just the bare, the tiniest bit of asymmetry is the reason that we have matter in the universe at all, right? Correct. This is one of the spookiest facts about the early universe. We can say we have matter, and okay, well... No, it's not, a, it's not a given that the universe would be created with matter at all. Mm-hmm. Because energy, remember, equals mc squared. The way that equation works is you can start with matter and convert it to energy under certain conditions. Now I got energy. Right. Fine. 
But now I want to convert the energy back to matter. If you're going to do that, there's only one way that can happen. And that's converting, that it, 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 it spontaneously makes a pair of matter-antimatter particles. And these are the particles that would come back together, back through the other side of the door, and annihilate and become energy again. So this is a two-way street. So like a proton, an antiproton, an Correct. electron, and a positron. Right, an electron and an anti-electron, which we has a word, positron. So every particle has an antiparticle. So this energy-matter soup is matter-antimatter annihilating, becoming energy, energy coming into matter again as pairs. Mm-hmm. Okay? As we cool, all right, there is a temperature below which there's a temperature below which energy can no longer become a particle. It doesn't have enough energy for this this spontaneous creation of that particle and antiparticle to exist to happen. That's yes, and I'm going to say it another way. What is the lowest mass particle you can think of? Okay? Lowest it's like an electron. All right? Fine. How much energy is an electron and a positron combined? Write down that number. And that's just equal to the mass of an electron times two times... Times two, exactly, exactly. Because the, 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 the electron and the positron has the same, have the same mass. So, so, so all that's going on here... Wait, antimatter has the same mass as its matter... It's counter- identical except for certain uh, quantum things like charge. But it's otherwise identical, okay? So, so, the... the the, the matter-antimatter electrons, ask yourself how much energy those are when they combine and write down that number. When the energy of the universe drops below that number, mm-hmm. the energy can no longer make anything. Because it's no, it doesn't exist enough to make the smallest no, thing there is. Yeah. To make the smallest, okay. okay. Right, there's yeah. no particle left for it to make. So you've frozen into place all particles you will ever make at that point. And for oh. some spooky reason, spooky there, reason, there's, an inc- there's more matter than antimatter. One anti-matter. out of 100,000 particles is an extra matter particle over antimatter particle. Which, That's the reason anything exists. Exactly. So 100,000 matter antiparticles combine, annihilate, make energy. We cool. We have frozen that energy into existence. So the entire universe and is just... And that one what- particle? Mm-hmm. That one matter particle is floating there with no dance partner. And we are made out of those parts. Everything you know and love and kissed and touched and ate and, and, and massaged <laughs> is made out of that one out of 100, 100 million particles. So even so that makes the original thing you wrote about the amount that was in the Big Bang even more ludicrous because actually what we have is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of what was in there. Well, except there is the energy of the universe. I, okay. I mean... You still like the energy. I mean, energy is still a good thing. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you still get energy from the sun, for example. Okay. Yeah, don't... don't. I won't knock energy. Don't knock energy. Right. So just doubling back, the th- one of the things that blew my mind about the, um, the, the moment in time when it cools below 3,000 kelvins, which is at this sort of 380,000 years into the universe, that is when there was a burst of visible light was created... And we can still see that to this day. Yes. So, yes. It was, light was released across the, traveling across the universe. At that moment when it cooled to that point. Yeah, because what happened was the electrons are batting light back and forth. Electrons and photons, light, they have a very deep, long-standing relationship with one another. Uh-huh. All right? So it's just the, it's the, the, it's the, the physics of electrons and light is one where they, it's like Miss Piggy and Kermit the Frog. <laughs> They're unlikely pairs, but they are... Totally digging one another. Once you remove the electron from the soup, the light can no longer be batted back and forth to and fro by the free electrons, and the light can now penetrate across the universe. So now the light is set free to cross the universe, and you can see light that has been traveling since the Big Bang, since that 380,000 years. That's the, that's the thing that I keep trying to picture, though, and maybe I'm wrong to even try to try to picture these things because they're so... Uh, different from anything we can experience. Can you please repeat the rubric? I mean, the- yeah, okay. Well, actually, I wanted to ask you this. Big, the universe big, is under no obligation to make sense to you. Big picture for you then, when you talk about these things, do you have an image, do you have a three-dimensional image in your head for a lot of this or do you understand enough to know that you can't actually have a picture in your head of a lot of this? That's a great question. So here's how that works. 
Um, so what is intuition? It's things you think natively based on your life experience so that it comes natural to you. Mm -hmm. So if your intuition or your common sense derives from everything that's ever happened in your life and what has happened in your life is not what has happened in the early universe or under a microscope, then things that happen in the universe and under a microscope will be outside of your realm of common sense. What you can do, however, is spend so much time studying what atoms and molecules do and the math of their behavior, or spend so much time studying the curvature of space-time with gravity and the Big Bang that you get a certain mathematical intuition okay. for how things must be. Mm -hmm. And when you achieve that, then you get a little sense of, yeah, that you say, yeah, I'm comfortable with that. Yeah. Even though by no stretch of anybody's imagination sh should you be, but you've grown accustomed to thinking that way. And you spend more time thinking that way than thinking the other way, like everybody else thinks. Then you can think intuitively about non-intuitive phenomena. What, what was it when you were coming up as a young scientist, when you were doing your PhD and then your later research, what was your field of expertise? What was it you My specialty? On? Yes. So it's astrophysics in general. Specialty is the structure of our galaxy and the birth, life, and death of stars. Okay. Yeah. Which you go into in some detail in the later chapters of the book. Yeah. So you just learn about... Oh, by the way, just for... So a potential reader would know. Yes. Uh, this book is the size that the title implies it should be. Yeah, it very much is. Yeah, this, um, yeah, it's very accessible, and it's not a super long read. The whole yeah, book. It, it's like an adorable little-sized book. The book is basically a, a primer on the universe. It's sort of it's yes. a doorway into further research. Exactly. So, so what my goal here was, if you read this book, you will then be fluent in all the cosmic headlines that will come your way during the next year. Yeah. On exoplanets, on yeah. big, Bang, on multiverse, on black holes on, you know, dark energy, the Big dark Bang, matter. dark energy, dark matter. Gravity waves. All, so. Gravity waves. All these buzzwords you've heard, you say, I wonder what that is. Then you got to dig it up and find a wiki page and read the newspaper article. And here, it is a, it's, a, it's a primer. I, I like the way you said that. I'm going to start using that term. It's a primer. Yeah, uh, it, it got a lot of things solidified in my mind that I'd known about but didn't know how they fit scale-wise exactly. with each other. Like, like I, I, hadn't, I hadn't appreciated until reading this book the difference between dark matter and dark energy. And they're very different things. Yeah, I, and they should have been just called Fred and Wilma because they, <laughs> they have nothing to do with one another that we know of. They're but just they have too... similar enough sounding names that people want them to kind of be yeah. the same. Yeah, in my head, I always assume that sort of dark energy that is the equally MC squared version of dark matter. Yeah, and no. It's not in the slightest. Oh, energy and matter. Right, right. Yeah. No. No. Well, maybe, but there's no evidence for that. So, so we, should, we should name them commensurate with our understanding of them and call them Fred and Wilma. Right. They're, they are both currently sort of effectively things that make the equations make sense because there's stuff that we don't yet know about the universe. Well, we've measured their existence. So they're, we didn't, they're not hypothesized entities. In other words, if you call them Fred and Wilma, does he know who Fred and Wilma is? I do. Oh, yeah, we got that. <laughs> you guys must have had that over there. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Did you guys have the... They're uh... a type of cereal, right? <laughs> uh, you know that Honeymooners rip-off cartoon? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess that's what it was, wasn't yeah. it? Except yeah. we never got the Honeymooners, so okay. I'm just like, this... There was a live-action rip-off of this... Uh... <laughs> well, plus they had kids, Bam Bam and, Pe and oh, Pebbles. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was not quite... But it was pretty on the nose. But they were working class, yeah. you know... Yeah. Uh, struggling to be happy. So dark, dark matter makes sense of this gravity. But, but my point is, if they had been named without any reference to what they could be, right. since we do not know what either of them is, then it would not be confusing you into trying to interpret the, the word. Right. And we put so much meaning into a word that we shouldn't when we know nothing. Gotcha. We do not know what dark matter is. We do not know what dark energy is. We are no closer to knowing what they are today than when either of them was discovered. So I want to call them Fred and Wilma. So let's say Fred, uh, dark the matter, thing that is Fred. currently known Fred as dark matter. matter. Okay. Uh, the, thing that, the thing that is... Oh, by the way, someone would later send me something. I didn't know this. There's in one of the comic universes, there is a superhero called Dark Matter. <laughs> and his, his human name... Is Fred. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, perfect. I, this this okay. was cool, I thought. So the thing that is currently labeled dark matter, what about the universe I, doesn't I, make sense? I will label it precisely. You ready? Yep. It's dark gravity. Okay. It is gravity that has no known origin. It is gravity. We measure its gravity. 
We don't know what it is. Because this but is the something bias that you only get gravity from having matter led people to call it dark matter. Mm-hmm. But that's a bias. Okay. Right. Because there's 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 galaxies that shouldn't be able to stay together at the speed that they spin Correct. if there wasn't more stuff pulling them into it than the current than the matter we so observe. So there's some other gravity there, but people say oh, there must be some missing matter there uh-huh. that we haven't accounted for. Technically, specifically, precisely, it's dark gravity. Uh, and the, the way you explain it in the book is we know that all matter has gravity, but we don't know that all gravity has matter. Exactly. We don't know exactly. That all. And that accounts for, I mean... That was good. So he, even though guys it's remember, not... Was he taking notes or did he... We both oh, did he notes. Yeah. You're not supposed to read the book of your guest. <laughs> you're supposed up. to pretend you read the book of the guest. We did our homework. I don't think we've had any... Uh, I think we're, that's the one thing we do well in this podcast is we take it seriously we have homework. Right? I think we always <laughs> okay, do that. I'm, I'm honored. Uh, I'm deeply honored. Well, I'm... I'm not honored. If you do that for all your guests, then no, I'm no, not, but especially I'm not differently <laughs> honored. But I'm, 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 I am proud of you. Thank for you. That's what we want as a gold your, star from our guests. Your that's interview cool. seriously. Yeah. So, so that's that's Fred. So Wilma, on the other hand, but also, can I ask a question about Fred before we move on? Sure. So it it, it exhibits it, it it exerts a gravitational force, and it accounts for what six times what, or at least gravity wise. Yeah, it says six times more. the gravity of regular matter. Yeah. But but it doesn't. So is it possible that it causes gravity, but isn't susceptible to it because it doesn't come together with itself? It doesn't. That's different. Form. So the reason why we come together mm-hmm. and make solid object, it's not because of gravity. It's because of electromagnetism. It's because of forces between atoms and molecules. But the initial, I mean, all matters attracted to all matter because of gravity. Yes, but for it to, yes. However, that'll attract it. But what makes it stick? Okay, so it would just like kind of attract and then go through itself? It would go through or? itself and come out the other side. Correct. Okay. Right. I know that sounds crazy. It seems like, yeah, it would, it would, then it would reach some kind of equilibrium where read the, it would Read the up. opening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, why am I trying to... Fair enough. Fair why enough. do you think I let off? These yes, are not wasted yes, words yes. in this book, people. Okay. Okay? Well, the you... leading passage. The universe is under no obligation, <laughs> no obligation. to make sense of you. Well, Signed... Neil D. Tyson, okay? <laughs> well, okay. Right, right at the beginning of the book, you, one of the things, again, one of the things I hadn't realized until this book is how um, the four fundamental forces in the universe uh, and the interplay between them, they split into the four, four different forces in the very early moments of the universe. Yes. Until, and so the, you've got the strong and the weak forces and electromagnetism and gravity. Yes. But they only became their unique things... Yeah, so in our version of the universe, nearly 14 billion years after all the action was, Mm -hmm. these forces manifest themselves differently from one another in different regimes with different methods and tools. If you go back far enough in the universe, then the conditions, the high temperature, the high densities, high pressures, these forces begin to be merged into one. And the revelation that this happened back then was worthy of a couple of Nobel Prizes. So electromagnetism and the weak nuclear force go back to the right time in the early universe. We would call it the electroweak force. It would only later would they split out and become the electromagnetic force and the weak nuclear force. And earlier still, those two and the strong force were the same one. Correct. And the expectation is that earlier still, the strong, the weak, and the electromagnetic bound together would also be bound to gravity. So this comes down to something... But we haven't figured out how to do that yet. Right. So this comes down to what one of the things you, you were talking about is this, this still disparity between Einstein's relativity understanding of the universe and the quantum understanding of the universe. But it, how at the time of the Big Bang, they had to be the same thing because one deals with small, one deals with very big and heavy, but they were the same at the Big Bang moment. Yeah, so that's right. So quantum physics deals with the small. Uh, uh, general relativity... <clears throat> Einstein's general relativity deals with the large. And those two theories are hugely successful in their regimes. But if you write them adjacent to one another on a sheet of paper, they do not make nice in the sandbox with one another. Right. You cannot fold one of them into another and describe the same coherent universe. So this has been a challenge. We've kept them because they work in their regimes. But when you go back to the Big Bang, the large was small. And we are thinking there must have been a forced shotgun wedding between the two in the early universe. We still don't know what that is, and we got top people working on it. Right. You mentioned those don't work together, but what I did learn from the book is that New- Newton and general relativity do work together 
with Newtonian physics just being a special case where you put in low mass, low speeds for GR. Is that right? Yeah. So let me say... Or not. I'll is, give you B plus with that explanation. Okay, sorry. No, 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 it's fine. No, what you said is accurate, but it's slightly misleading. I, I want to say it differently. Okay. But what you said is fine. I'd rather say it. It's not that Newton and general relativity are compatible. That's not the, quite the right way to say it. Newton's gravity fails miserably at high mass and high gravity and mm-hmm. high speeds. Fails. Einstein's gravity, general relativity, when you put in low masses, low speeds, it becomes Newton's laws. So it's a superset of, of me- medium and large. Whereas you put high speeds in Newton's laws, you don't get, you don't get Einstein. Anything. Yeah. So it's, the way you said it would leave one to think okay. that you can turn Newton into Einstein. You cannot. Yeah. But Einstein, you can turn into Newton. But we don't have three regimes to worry about. We just have two, basically, at this point. We, like, well, no, it's only one. I mean, it's... Oh, you mean for... Like there's tiny and there's massive, but we don't have a third. We figured, like, yeah. Well, who knows? Maybe the third regime is the multiverse or dark matter or dark energy. Who the hell knows? Boy, all this astrophysics has me tuckered out. It is a lot to think about. I need a, I need a little little nappy, I think. You need to think on it? Let it yeah. all mull over? A little nappy nap. Go lie well, down somewhere. Get I some presume rest. you're just going to lie in some, like, shitty pit full of broken glass oh you're thinking of andy from two weeks ago oh really yeah has something changed in your life turned over a new leaf matt well so have i funnily enough yeah i, I used to sleep as you know in a hedge but now <laughs> as, I, brits, as brits are wont to do as we do as we do you know we are woodland folk but i now sleep in a bed that's covered in sheets provided by parachute home Parachutehome.com slash science? Yeah, that's exactly the website. You know that's, it? It's so funny because I have a, a set of linen sheets and a duvet cover and top sheet on my bed right now from Parachute. Holy cow. Mine up a kale. I went for a different went fabric. For kale. I went linen. Well, I read on their blog that linen is the better one for people who run hot at night. And I, I tend to sweat a lot while I sleep. And uh, I read that linen is is renowned for its um, Andy. breathability. Yes. What? You already know that we have listeners who get quite carried away at some of the photographs on your Instagram from your swim meets. Okay, yeah. Your once, semi-clad once, pictures of... Once or twice a year, I post a shirtless picture with a famous swimmer on my Instagram account. Yes, this is true. So just any of those listeners, stop picturing whatever you're currently picturing <laughs> as Andy, but just hotter and sweatier. Yeah, I was surprised that linen was the material recommended for people who get hot, but um, then again, it makes sense. It's what people wear in warmer climates, and it does. It feels cool to the touch, and I haven't woken up sweating or having to pull sheets off of me it, it breathes and it's it's so comfortable like from the moment i got in it i'm like oh this is what i've been missing out on with all these cheap sheets i had in the past yeah with your we a thousand thread count, thousand which, yeah I we've didn't all realize. done that i think so we've like, all looked for high yeah, thread count sheets exactly i hadn't realized so parachute i think the nerdy listeners and i say nerd in the most positive in the nerd positive sense right they have quite a cool blog on the website where they break down certain aspects of bedding. They're very nerdy about their bedding and about how they make it and everything. And one of the things is thread count. Kind of bullshit. Kind of bullshit. There's only... Yeah, you can only fit so much into a square inch and people just kind of inflate those numbers and think that yeah, people... Yeah, 400 is about the maximum number of threads that you can fit in a square inch with any normal material. Then to get more, they just count individual plies of the fabric. Like anything when they go like, oh, it's a thousand threads, they're like, they're counting the individual threads, within threads, the threads? that make up... The, yeah, it's, oh, okay. it's well, pretty bullshitty. So you don't really want to just look at that number. You want to look at the quality of the materials and the manufacturing... And this is what Parachute does. They get the finest manufacturing. They go to these top European makers. They don't just rinse their material full of fabric softener that then washes out over time. And the right. mati- like these sheets actually become better over time rather than worse. Yeah, the more you wash them, the softer they get. Yeah. So have a look. Have a little check if you're at all sheet curious. Yeah, or if you've done what we've done and gone online and just looked for some cheap but high thread count sheets and you realize, oh, wait, these aren't that comfortable, try this out. Uh, you, yeah, you know, if you ever sort of slept in a hotel and gone like, oh, what is this place doing better? Why are these really nice? Give it, it a go, and it's zero risk because you have a 60-day no-risk money-back guarantee. Yeah, free returns. And if you do return them, they donate those sheets to Habitat for Humanity. This company's doing so many things that are cool. And you get this high quality thing at, at less than you'd expect because they, they cut out the middleman. So, you know, this is a thing that you spend a third of your life on. Why not splurge a little bit? Or if and- you're a comedian like us, then 
80 to 90 percent of your life of your life right but i didn't realize what i was missing out on and now i genuinely look forward to getting in bed i know it sounds like i'm just chilling but like i'm like oh tonight i get to go lie in they're so great they're just surprisingly comfortable and life enhancing <laughs> so yeah parachutehome.com slash science just check it out have a look at the website play around see if it's the kind of thing that appeals to you it does to us we think you'll like it too Again, that's parachutehome.com slash science, free shipping and returns, and a 60-night no-risk trial. Just send it back if you don't love it, but you're going to love it. Another fact in the book that really surprised me, I hadn't realized that um, some parts of the universe are expanding away from us faster than the speed of light. And because of that, there's a frontier past which we can't see. Yes, because the light from beyond that horizon has lost all of its energy before it reaches us, and whatever's beyond that horizon will be forever out of view. So, so that doesn't contravene... To our that doesn't contravene Einstein. Things can... Because the, the space time... that's a good word. That's yeah. a good... Thank it's you. A, it's British, a Brit. The Brits. <laughs> the Brits, yeah, they're all smarter than us. Well, whether or not they're smarter, they have better vocabulary, for sure. Okay. Uh, so, well, just more syllables. But, uh, that's true. <laughs> so, so that doesn't... Con- it doesn't contravene Einstein's laws to have the to have space itself expanding faster than the speed of light. That's right. So we've all heard you can't go faster than light. That's in the pre-existing space that you're talking about. But space itself can stretch, expand, and it can do that faster than the speed of light. No law of physics against it. And so there, there may well be parts of the universe that are beyond our ever-reaching. So there might be... Dis- so there are effectively discrete separate universes because they can never touch. So one example of the concept of a multiverse are pockets within the same space-time but that are separated from one another because they lie beyond each other's horizons. Mm-hmm. Yes, so there's, there's speculation that we need to fold that into our broadest thinking of a multiverse along with other multiverse ideas that people have come up with. So if, if you sort of fast forward far enough into the future, we may theoretically reach a point if the universe does expand indefinitely where nothing is, everything apart from just us is Just beyond. our galaxy. Is- yeah, yeah. So there'll be a point where all galaxies other than the nearest ones have expanded beyond this, this horizon right. out of you and then there'd be no knowledge of the history of the universe. And there'd be no cosmology because there'd be no relics left over from the Big Bang. And that left me deeply disturbed, that revelation. Because I ask, is there a chapter from the book of the universe that we are now studying where all the pages have been removed before we even put our hands on the book? Right. Someone in your position a trillion years... A trillion, a, trillion, a trillion years ago. Trillion now. From now, yeah. mm-hmm. all those galaxies will be expanded beyond our horizon. And if it's an apocalyptic Earth and they don't, like zombies took over, and they don't have any record of what anything we were thinking, they have to come up with it on their own, they will have no access to the origin story of and our the, universe. And the flip side of that fear is what have we already lost, potentially? That's my point. What chapters have been ripped from the book of the universe uh, that lay beyond our knowledge, or our inquiry, or our even, or our, even our capacity to ask a question about. Because it's, it's, back then, you wouldn't even, you wouldn't be saying, "Well, maybe there would." There used to be a hundred billion of these that we call well, a galaxy. Yeah. yeah, who's going to say that, right? And maybe it was expanding, and maybe it began. No, no, there's no, there's no place to come from to even have those thoughts. Yeah. Well, what we're talking it's about? Disturb- I lose sleep over this. It's, yeah, <laughs> it's crazy to think about. Yeah, when you apply that backwards logic to not. Yeah. Well, when we're talking about um, while we're talking about expansion, let's talk about uh, Wilma now and Einstein's mistake that wasn't a mistake but might have been a mistake, <laughs> as as you put it in the book. Einstein's greatest greatest blunder. Yes. Okay. Oh. Oh. So. So. so uh, when Einstein wrote down his equations of the universe, his general theory of relativity, he noticed that it produced an unstable result. Either the universe that this equation represented is either collapsing or expanding. Both possibilities were completely preposterous. How could everything there ever is or was or will be be doing anything? Right? If it's expanding, what is it expanding into? If it's shrinking, what did it used to be? Where is it going? So he said there's got to be, something must be stabilizing this. And there's a term there that comes naturally out of the equations that he introduced 
and it's called the cosmological constant. And that was a kind of a negative gravity force to balance the urge of gravity to make the universe shrink. And there it was, his general theory of relativity. Then within a few years, Edwin Hubble, the man, not the telescope, discovers we live in an expanding universe. If you're in an expanding universe, you don't need this anti-gravity term. And when Einstein learned this, by the way, he could have predicted that we lived in either a shrinking or an expanding universe. Uh-huh. If he had the gonads to go with his, his own damn equation, all right? Right. But he didn't. So he's like, the equation says this, but that can't be right. It can't be right. But there was so no I've made observable a evidence at that point? No, no one that... even knew how to think about that problem. Okay. Oh my gosh, no, no. So the observable evidence came in 1929 with Edwin Hubble, which shows the universe is expanding. So with Einstein, he, he quickly takes out this cosmological constant and says it's the worst blunder ever. Fast forward 70 years... And we discover an anti-gravity pressure operating in the universe. And we call that Wilma. Right. I call it Wilma. But it's dark Some people energy. call it dark energy. Dark energy. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone calls it dark energy. <laughs> so, so we have to put the term back in. Right. And we've measured the... We don't know what that dark energy is. We don't know where it's coming from. We don't know where it's going. But we know how much is there. And the dark energy plus the dark matter is 95% of everything that drives the universe. And we live, exist, know, love, eat, hate in the 5% that's left over well, that, it, of the universe. A common theme of the book is, is how much, in general, of the things we think of as being the universe are actually just a tiny fraction of... Like, even, even down to that normal matter, how much of... How much of the galaxy is not in a star or a planet, but just in clouds of gases and... Yeah, so there's a couple of chapters on the stuff that's between stuff. Right. Right, there's stuff between the stars, <laughs> stuff between the planets. You know, you look at the night sky, your attention is, is commanded by the things that give you light. But how about the things that don't give you light? Like, like the dark gas clouds and rogue planets and all manner of These things. These are just that planets are that aren't attached to a star uh, to a star's orbit anymore. They're just floating freely yeah, through space. Right. And we used to think, well, it couldn't possibly be life on them, but wait a minute. If that planet still had energy left over from when it formed, geothermal energy, that's energy that's not from a host star. So maybe life could still thrive on these rogue planets in the dark. Because all you really need is a source of energy. And there's plenty of animals, fishes in the bottom of the ocean that basically have no meaningful eyesight because it doesn't matter. They can't see anyway because mm-hmm. all the light got attenuated before it got to the bottom of the ocean. Which also made me think about something else when we we're talking about light reaching us and, and us wanting to observe just through the visible, the, vis, the visual spectrum. Um, how, really how random it is that book. we... You guys, how, you read this book. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's in the book. But I mean, I started thinking about how we evolved to happen to have these sensors that just detect radiation in this tiny spectrum and why, why that band is what we ended up with. You oh, know, like, because we live in the daytime? But our I mean... Species, what? Sorry. <laughs> our species thrives in the daytime. So we should be sensitive to the light emitted by what's up in the daytime, and that would be the sun. Mm-hmm. And if you look at all the energy that comes from the sun, you can ask how much red light comes from the sun, how much orange, yellow, green, blue, violet, the colors of the rainbow. All those colors are coming from the sun, every one of them. But the sun peaks at the boundary between yellow and green. I never knew that. That answers the question. It peaks yeah. there. <laughs> and so does the retinal sensitivity of your eye. That's crazy, okay. So we take maximum advantage of the energy coming from the sun. Makes total sense. Now, if we were insects that do not thrive in the daytime, we thrive in twilight, well, we're very sensitive to ultraviolet. And why ultraviolet? Because all that blue light was filtered from the sun when the sun is low on the horizon. It's filtered by all the crap that's in the atmosphere, scatters it across the sky, and that's why the sky becomes very deep blue at sunset, a beautiful deep blue. That is rich in ultraviolet mm-hmm. in twilight. And that's what insects observe. Now, their whole vision has been shifted. So they barely see the red, orange, yellow. But they see the ultraviolet. Mm-hmm. Now, evidence that we are smarter than insects, in case you needed it. Sure. Okay. In my day, we had something called a bug bulb, 
which was an amber bulb that you put over your picnic table. And we used to think it repelled insects. No, <laughs> they just don't see it at all. They're not sensitive to the red side of the spectrum, red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Mm -hmm. They just don't see the bulb. It is of no interest to them. Now we want to kill the insects. What do we do? Uh... Like the zappers? Yeah, the bug zapper. Yeah, yeah. So what? What? It, so how did? They, why would they go to the bug zapper? If uh, it's an ultraviolet, they, it's an ultraviolet yeah, bulb. Yeah. It's ultraviolet. So that's the most fascinating thing in their life is to reach the ultraviolet bulb that you have put in the corner of your yard, and then they can't help themselves. They go towards the ultraviolet, and then you electrocute them. That's evidence that we are smarter <laughs> than insects. The now, only piece of evidence. I lose sleep over the possibility that. Aliens much smarter than we are come to Earth, and they could just put up traps for us <laughs> that we will just willingly walk into. We, and we have no mental capacity to solve the problem, to interpret what they're doing, and to even understand why. Well, are those traps just like Transformers sequels at the theater? <laughs> I know, yeah, I don't know. Well, I don't know. It's something we care about. Like really good food here, free sex there, um, something that you want, maybe. Yeah but you would otherwise not have access to mm -hmm. at all times? Well, you even talk about how marginal that difference in intelligence has to be. Like, how great in our minds the leap is intelligence between a, an ape and a human, and yet how genetically similar we are. That, so how yeah, so something's got to give there. Right. right? We, we are essentially identical genetics. That little difference is tiny. But we're, we're prone to say, well, what a difference that does make. You know? Because we're 98... 99% identical DNA. So the chimp can stack boxes and reach a banana, maybe. We can build the Hubble telescope. Mm -hmm. The chimp can find the right stick to put in a termite mound and extract termites. We have poetry and music and... Okay, so... Flintstones. And the Flintstones. <laughs> Fred and Wilma. So, so our urge is to say what a difference that makes, but maybe our intelligence is closer to one another than our hubris requires us to think. Okay. And if that's the case, maybe the Hubble telescope is not all that far advanced from stacking boxes to grab a banana. And you'll say, well, of course it is. Of course it's more advanced. And I'm saying, maybe not. So imagine an alien life form as intelligent compared to humans as humans are compared to chimps. They would have a triflingly different DNA all in the direction of their intelligence. So we would be to them what chimpanzees are to us. If a chimpanzee did a did a draw, uh, you know, finger painting, so isn't that cute? Okay. Yeah. That's the smartest chimpanzee does a finger painting. Mm -hmm. So the aliens will roll the smartest human forward and say, "This one can do astrophysics calculation." Rolled Stephen Hawking for it. Can do astrophysics calculation in his head, like our little Timmy over here who just came home from elementary school. <laughs> oh, this is oh, you compose a sonnet today. Huh? Yeah. Let's put it up on the refrigerated door with a magnet. Oh, you just derived the principle of calculus. Oh, that's so <laughs> cute. So imagine they were that intelligent. Yeah, he's doing calculus like people. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, like the people in a cage that yeah. we have here. He thinks he's people. <laughs> he thinks he's people. Isn't that cute? <laughs> so imagine how helpless we would be in the presence of that intellect. I lose sleep over that as well, practically every night. Uh, <laughs> you don't sleep much, do you? No. That's I got serious problems ahead of me. Yeah, more time for physics and writing. Um, I I, I want to uh, I have to ask you about this one because this is something I hadn't heard and it's wonderful. Uh, this is one of my country folk back in the day, Sir William Herschel, the English astronomer who discovered the planet we now. He's, sh he's showing off now because he's, <laughs> he's got his people. I've got his people. Yeah, yeah I've yeah. got his people, and I've got the book in front of me, so I can. I'm sounding like this is all from memory, but this is. A, <laughs> but uh, I, I I don't want to even take this line from you because this is a. This is a joy, but he discovered the planet that is now known as uh, Uranus. Uranus, yes. And that is how you pronounce that planet name. Definitively. Okay, yeah, yes. we can put that to bed. Uranus. Yeah. Uh, but he, uh, he originally wanted to name it after the then king. Yes, his principal funder. So he discovered Uranus in the late 1700s, the same king of Declaration of Independence king. So that would be King George, right? The, to whom the Declaration of Independence was, was addressed mm -hmm. uh, or is intended. So, yeah. So he... 
like any, and no one had discovered a planet before, so there was no rules and regulations about how to name them. All the planets, Mercury, Venus, Mars, Jupiter, and Saturn, were all known to the ancients. Anybody with eyeballs would have seen them in the sky. So no one is credited. So, so they were named back at a time that people didn't know that that was a planet and that's a star. That's just another bright thing in the sky. No, they knew that the objects that moved against the background stars should not be called stars. Of course. They should be called wanderers. Mm. Oh, that's right. And so it's the Greek word for wanderer is planetus. Oh, I never knew that so either. So planetus means just a star that moves around as opposed yeah, to the yeah, fixed stars. Well, a wanderer specifically, and it also is an indication of how clueless they were about why the planets were doing what they were doing. Otherwise, you wouldn't say they were wandering. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. true. That's right? That's prescribed. a measure of your ignorance. You're going to say that they're wandering. So... So he, he thus named it after his principal funder. And for about 20 or 30 years, and I have some of these books from back in the early 1800s, you'd look at the enumeration of planets from the sun, and it's Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, and George. <laughs> it's just what that was. It's like the like like dock of the seven dwarfs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's just George. Yeah. George and f- we would f- clearer heads would prevail and I tell the story in the book of course by the way not everything in the book is pure astrophysics this this I'm telling you about the discovery of Uranus here and the discovery of elements as well and no, yeah. elements yeah so it's the stuff that rounds out the storytelling of the story of astrophysics it's so the that, sort of perfect dinner party primer yeah, like sort yeah of, sure this to give you to give you method to give you uh, ammo to 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 make your place and stake your place at a dinner party for sure. Um, well, before before we run out, because I know we're we're running out of time here, but I've, I've running out of time. I don't get to hear about you guys. What you do? <laughs> it's all about me and my what? Well, this is a crass commercial. <laughs> <in my book. laughs> what do you want to know? That was not my. So how do you know this guy? Uh, we met. We had a, Matt on on my radio show on on Star Talk. Yeah, we gained a lot of listeners from that. And, oh, you yeah, did. We okay. had him on, 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 <laughs> on TV and on the radio. Both right. times, I think we got like a twenty percent jump. In it was this definitely. Uh, yeah. it, so you got a Tyson bump. We got Tyson. We got bump. A Tyson, <laughs> bump. Tyson bump. <laughs> Fingers crossed for this one. Yeah, uh-huh. um, we met at a pool party six years ago. Right. We did. Well, uh, we, at billiard party or at a poolside uh, poolside swimming party at my old house. This is L.A. Excuse me. We we found out. The reason this podcast started is we found out within um I had this idea sort of bubbling in my head to do some kind of comedy and science podcast and then within the space of a week I I met Andy who was another comedian with a background in science and then Brooks who was the initial host of the show who was a biomedical technician Wait, there was and someone else who hosted this, and you there just... There was a third host. Is there he was, dead? What, what happened well, to him? He, <laughs> we bumped him off. We had such a good idea. Just the way you said that. Yeah. I met the original founder the of original. this podcast. Since when is a podcast handed off to other people? <laughs> when, you get, when you get picked up, uh, when oh. Lorne Michaels uh, hires you to be on Saturday Night Live. Oh, that's I what, yeah. I you, don't, you didn't want to lose the fan base that he had collected. Well, we just didn't want to. Uh, actually, he stopped doing it like six months before he got. He SNL, sort of. He I sort think. of was already because he was working a full time day job still as an engineer and doing comedy, and I think it was just the time constraints. So for the first for the first uh, sort of year or so of doing the podcast, maybe a bit less, it was the three of us, and then Brooks left, and then Jesse joined, and then My Jesse roommate, got a yeah. comedian with no science background, but very funny comic, and then yeah. Jesse got ill, so he had to. He went off to Tennessee to stay with his parents for a bit while he got better. He's and doing he's, great. He's doing great, yeah. but he's still listen to Jesse versus Cancer, the podcast, to hear the story. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Uh, but he's you know he's in remission, and we're all very happy about that. But that um, but that's how it happened. So within a short space of time, I suddenly knew two comics with a science background, and we started knocking around these ideas. Wow. So there are conceivably unemployed engineers on the street corner holding up a sign saying, "We'll do comedy for free." <laughs> that's effectively <laughs> pretty much. That's sort of the LA open mic scene in a nutshell. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, yeah, so we, we you know we sort of we started doing the Just, show. You know, I enjoyed Matt on my show because we we love ourselves comedians. Oh, great! Cause, yeah, because I. That way I don't have to try to be funny, and they can be funny, and I can just put all that stuff on the table. Well, that's because Eugene Merman a lot, right, in the show? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he's one of our... We have a stable of comedians, yeah. if I'm allowed to use the word stable in a loving way. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Okay. Yeah, so I, I get to be the bunch. idiot, and then you get to come in with uh, real no, information. No, we only get smart comedians to come on. <laughs> well, smart we'll idiot. Make, smart idiot, okay. Yeah, you can make perceptively inane comments. Yeah. I'll take a B-plus from Neil deGrasse Tyson. I'm going to put that... That's going to go up on my refrigerator once you leave. I'm going to write that out. You got the refrigerator magnet yeah, with that? Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. all right. So, so here's the question I'd love I'd love to ask you because uh, because in the book you take us through 
the the changes in knowledge of how the universe works from how Newton being the first person to really conceive that the rules of the laws of science are that universal that what's true on earth is the same at a galactic level and is true across the universe. In fact, that's an entire chapter on earth as it is in the heavens. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then you take us through to Einstein's uh, later discoveries. If you were, if you were to jump in a time machine or in fact, let's scrap time machine. Cause that's comp. If you were to go into stasis, if you were to fall asleep for 300 years and you were to wake up in the, uh, Global Republic of Trumpania, or whatever we're in now. <laughs> uh, Trumpania. Um, but and you were Could to Trump again, a global movement. You're saying exactly. That's why. Okay. But you were to you were to run into a. Let's say science hasn't been halted in the way that I it. W- so let's scrap Trumpania. Let's say science has continued on its current path for and another three hundred years. And you bump into a, a a physicist. You bump into a physicist in the year twenty three seventeen. What is the first question you would ask that physicist? What would you want to know from them as to what, what would you like to know in terms of what they now know about the universe? Do you have flying cars yet? Yeah. <laughs> I want the flying cars. Yeah, I'm where sorry. are the flying cars? I know helicopters are basically flying cars, <laughs> but still. Uh, no, so I would, so I, I would probably uh, ask about the power of their computing. Okay. Have they achieved AI yet? Uh, artificial intelligence. I would ask... Um, have they found the island of stability among chemical elements on the periodic table where very heavy elements are no longer unstable as so many heavy elements are and we think from our models of the atom that there's a what we call an island of stability so there, there are elements waiting to be discovered there that are stable and you could just put a, a blob of it on your table now why is that interesting because every element on the table has some differently distinct property that we have exploited for modern civilization from copper to carbon to in multiple states to to tin, iron, aluminum, cadmium, iridium, platinum, all of these elements have very uh, americium, an element we discovered in a laboratory, named it after our own damn country. That is the active ingredient. What the original active ingredient in smoke detectors? That's what's saving lives, not flame-proof underwear or or pajamas that they used to sell children okay by the way if the flames are about to ignite your pajamas underwear is not gonna (laughs) the fact that it was flame proof is too late it's not gonna make a damn bit of difference so it's actually save people's lives so each so i so i would want to know what new elements, what new alloys, what new materials? So I would be tapping material science, uh, computer science, biologically, can they live forever? Did they find the aging gene? Have they, have they colonized multiple other planets? Are they, tell me about transportation. Have they solved the, 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 the food challenge? Uh, have they, um, tell me about what wars look like. <laughs> Do people still fight wars? Or, 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 or have the unlimited resources of the universe all but made that um, obsolete? I would, I would be totally all there. All there. All up in it. Um, sh- that's great. That's yeah. Then I say, what was around before the universe? And are there a multiverse? And who, what, what are your biggest telescopes today? And, who are, and, and are, are there still countries? Uh, did you have to deflect an asteroid? that has come our way? Uh-huh. Did you learn how to do that? Did you get hit with one and did you then figure it out? When did, when did Earth start to begin to become smart again? All right, <laughs> uh, when did that happen? How long did it take? Are there some civilizations that have gone extinct because of neglect? Has Africa finally come onto the map given how extensive, deep and broad its natural resources are? Because nothing, Africa is a tremendous laggard in its relationship economically, especially, but also health and, 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 and wealth to the rest of the world. I'd say all, have you figured out how to terraform yet? Have you terraformed Mars? That's, that's what I'd ask. Wonderful. What would be the most exciting answer to hear to any of those? Uh, ooh. That they figured out uh, wormholes. Ah. Enabling you transportation across the galaxy. Now, just to, just to be quick, just to show you how I can embarrass myself. Because uh, I, I tweet with some frequency. Maybe, <laughs> maybe four to six tweets a week. So almost one a day. Fine. It, it's, it's a... Average low amount. All right. So I thought I was cute. I was in the Charlotte airport 
North Carolina. And I had to go from a big plane to a little plane, all right, for that connection. I swear I walked two miles in those terminals just mm -hmm. to go from the big plane section to the – maybe it wasn't two miles, but it felt like two miles. Uh -huh. Oh, my gosh. So I thought I'd be cute, and I tweeted, and I said, I can't wait till we invent wormholes so that very different gates can just be adjacent to one another <laughs> via wormhole, yeah. right? And then someone tweeted back, if you have wormholes – you don't need airports. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so I said, stupid me. Yeah. That was thinking I was being clever, right? Let me show them how clever I am. And it's like, okay, busted. You got me. Yeah. So I think that would be the coolest because then you can go anywhere and forever. I won't ask them if they've invented a time machine because if they had, then we would have known it by now. Yeah. Do Will wormholes Why solve have, flaking, right? though? Yeah. Do you have no excuse not to be a flake once you have wormholes and people still flake? Do you think by uh, yeah. do you think by three hundred years time that a scientist will have managed to unify grav uh, relativity and yes, I think there'll be a deeper understanding. We'll know what dark matter is. We'll know what dark energy is. Would be great if we can exploit their pro whatever they are for our mm -hmm. own properties. We did that with quantum physics. Nineteen twenties, we're probing the atom. Why are you probing the atom? You can't even see atoms. I'm a woodworker. I just cared that the wood is made of wood atoms. That's all, right? What do you, why do you even, why are we spending this brain power on something you will never see or control or understand? And then 50 or 40 years later, quantum physics is the foundation of information technology. There is no creation, storage, and retrieval of information without quantum physics. And by some measures, IT and quantum physics are responsible for one third of the world's GDP. So, so just because we don't know something and it sounds irrelevant should not be the reason to not study it further. Yeah. And by the way, you asked about dark matter, uh, and I said it does not, not only does it not interact with us, it doesn't interact with itself. I just want to drive home the fact yeah. that it would feel itself and it would start coming towards itself, and they'll just pass through and, and oscillate back and forth forever. Okay, okay. You, it has to be able to stick to itself somehow, and we only stick to ourselves because of electromagnetic forces. I guess that makes sense because there's no friction at play, so why couldn't it just oscillate forever and not... It'll just oscillate yeah, forever, yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. Right. Friction means it knows about... It's, it's no, touching. friction is also electromagnetic interaction, uh, isn't it? it, yeah, it ultimately, yes. Technically. Yes, yeah, yeah. technically, yes. Right. Um, Neil, where can our listeners find you? Like, the one listener who doesn't already <laughs> oh. follow you on Twitter. <laughs> I think our listenership is a subset of your listenership anyway. <laughs> same, so. same. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I think we, you guys are doing... Doing, doing God's work, as they say <laughs> out there, trying to uh, spread the love of science um, and have people laugh and smile en route. The, uh, so, yeah, I tweet at Neil Tyson. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and thanks for turning this entire show into a commercial for my book. <laughs> that was not what I needed, but uh, fine. Uh, well, I think, I think your book is pretty much like is a good intro to everything that you do anyway. It yeah, so it's, it's an adorable little book specifically for those in our And I think it's not even that expensive because it's so little. Um, and so, do yes, they, in do on they Amazon. charge by weight for books? Is that it is. how it works? Well, by what fraction of a tree yeah. is killed? <laughs> the <laughs> they, they, every, every book should have uh, trees were harmed in the making of this <laughs> yeah. book. Uh, even if it's an ebook. When uh, oh, I end the book. With a whole recitation on the cosmic perspective. Yeah, it's sort of a love letter to science. It's, it's a love letter to science and perspective and what it is to just to explore the universe and fold that in to who and what you are and what you can become. And not be made to feel trivial because of it, but, but empowered by it. Exactly. If you have a big ego, yeah, you're going to feel as small as, as, as is psychologically possible. But if you go in with no ego and allow your understanding of our place in the universe to to ennoble you. It's not that we are different from other life forms, we are the same. It's not that our galaxy is different from other galaxies, we're all galaxies. It's not that our atoms are somehow distinct, it is the same atoms with common origin, forged in the cores of stars, so that we are not figuratively but literally stardust, brought to life, brought to consciousness, with an intelligence enough to ask, where did we come from? That's a beautiful place to leave it. The book is called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. <laughs> there it is. Neil deGrasse Tyson, thank you so much for Thanks, joining us. Thanks, guys. It's a ton. Thank Excellent. you. Excellent. Wow. Neil deGrasse Tyson was just in my apartment. He totally was. That was a really cool thing. He was great, unsurprisingly. 
I suspect we have some listeners who haven't been with us before who've joined us because of Neil. And if so, I hope you like what we did and check out some of our other episodes. If you enjoy us, subscribe and go through our back catalogue. We have some episodes with scientists like Neil where we just talk about their work. We have other episodes with comedians where we talk about the week in science news. We kind of mix it up. But I hope you like it. Uh, spread the word. Uh, people who are already fans of the show, you know what to do. Tell other people. Mm-hmm. Get us out there. And if you want to help us out monetarily, you can always click on the donate button on probablyscience.com. That helps out, certainly. And if you want to buy Neil's book, which you do, you know you do, we'll put a link to that on the website and in the show notes. So check that out. It's a great primer on the universe and everything. You got a bit of a taster on this show, but there's a lot more in the book. And if you want to see both of our pretty faces, we just put out a video with Wired where we compared the accent comprehension ability of... Amazon Echo, Google Home, and Siri, and it was pretty fun. And uh, it's it's kind of trending right now. It's number seven trending on YouTube. It's approaching four hundred thousand views. So. Yeah, that was really fun. <laughs> and you can try the Benedict Cumberbatch test yourself. You'll know what that means if you watch the video. So check that out. Yeah, just Google Wired Siri test or Wired Accent test, and either of those should bring up the video. But in the meantime, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much, Neil deGrasse Tyson, for joining us. Thank you, new listeners, for coming our way. I hope you like us. And thank you, old faithful listeners, for being with us for a while. We'll see you next time.